Welcome to today's Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Uh, our housekeeping to get started. If you look in the GoToWebinar tool panel, you'll see the handout for today's presentation. So I encourage you to download that handout so you can follow along with the slides. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, please type those in the question blocks. Well, we can moderate uh, questions to our presenters. When I close the webinar today, there's a short survey. Uh, we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future journal clubs. Um, we're starting to think about what uh, we want to cover in the fall. Um, so any suggestions on themes and topics would be most appreciated. And then watch for an email. We'll probably try to get that out by the end of the day tomorrow with a link to the recording uh, the handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your uh, live attendance today. So I will turn things over to our moderator. Dr. Kristen DiFilippo is assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, today we have three speakers. Abiodun Ataloye is a postdoc at the University of Connecticut and holds a PhD in nutrition science. She seeks to understand ways to close the nutrition and the health gaps experienced by low-resource families, refugees, and immigrant communities through community-led solutions, policy, systems, and environment change approaches. Her current projects include nutrition education, food safety, and racial equity in the food system and environment-related diet disparities. Dr. Carrie Derward is an associate professor and extension nutrition specialist in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Science at Utah State University. She focuses on federally funded program implementation and evaluation, including nutrition education and farmer's market incentives. Her other projects include food sustainability and hunger relief programs through community gleaning. Dr. Savoy Roskus is an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Science at Utah State University. She is also the director of the Master of Public Health programs for the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences. She studies a wide variety of topics in public health, community nutrition, including farmer's market incentives, SNAP-Ed nutrition education, gardening interventions, motivational interviewing, and food insecurity. I want to thank all three of them for joining us today. I look forward to their presentation, and at this point, I can pass it over to our speakers. Thanks so much, Kristen, for that um, great introduction, and thank you so much for SNEB for having us here today. So we are going to be talking about the methods that we used uh, to create our systematic review about the effectiveness of the expanded food and nutrition education program in changing nutrition-related outcomes among adults with low income. Next slide, please. So our objectives, at the end of this session, we want you to be able to describe the selection of the research methods and the research design that we used. We want you to be able to explain the strengths and possible limitations of the methods used and also identify the lessons that we learned and apply those, those lessons and recommendations for best practices if you move forward uh, conducting a systematic review. Next slide, please, Abita. 
So uh, the nutrition educator competencies that we'll be covering are 1.8, 8.6, and 10.1. And I won't go over those in detail, um, but they're in the handout and um, when you're filling out your CEU certificate. Next slide, please. So we wanted to start with just a brief overview of what a systematic review is, um, the purpose of it. And so a systematic review is different from like a narrative or um, just something just called a review because it's done in a very systematic way um, using methods that are hopefully relatively repeatable to look at all of the evidence that's in the literature and analyze it in a way that minimizes bias and improves repeatability. Um, so uh, when we do a systematic review, we want to do everything possible so that if somebody else did a did the same procedure, um, that they would get similar results about which papers are included and not included and the conclusions that they draw from the body of literature. And so it's designed to answer a very specific research question, unlike a narrative review, which might have a, a much broader uh, focus. And we are going, you're going to collect multiple primary studies um, that are related to the specific research question. And um, like I said, we're trying to reduce bias by um, selecting studies for inclusion based on predefined criteria and evaluating strengths and limitations in a systematic way, as well as kind of um, synthesizing and reporting uh, the evidence in a systematic way as we can. And um, systematic reviews are, are really helpful to provide a synthesis um, not just of, of one research study, but of like the body of evidence or the research literature as a whole. This can be really helpful if we are trying to inform decision making or in a situation where maybe there's a bunch of conflicting results um, in the literature. And it can also help us identify gaps in current research. Next slide, please. So this is the article um, that we'll be talking about the methods for. It is available through SNEB um, if you want to read more about uh, the results and conclusions and things like that. Uh, next slide, please. So this systematic review was funded in part by a, um, a USDA grant to look at some uh, potential uh, innovative ways to evaluate our, our large federally funded programs. And so you're probably uh, familiar with the Expanded Food and Nutrition Education Program, or FNEP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, Education, or SNAP-Ed. Those are the two programs that we were uh, focusing on. Um, although they have differences, they're both aimed at our low-income Americans, and they both use multiple education strategies to improve um, dietary behavior, um, among other goals. And so we felt that, you know, documenting uh, what the research literature said about their ability to change that dietary behavior um, was really important to uh, showing program efficacy 
and there were a lot of published research studies in the uh, literature um, that we wanted, um, that we thought deserved kind of this systematic synthesis. Um, the very first step before you start a systematic review is to look for existing systematic reviews. And so when we looked, we really didn't find any asking the, the same question as we did. So um, Marini et al. Uh, had a review, also an SNEB, looking at the characteristics of successful nutrition education interventions. And Perez Escamilla et al. had a systematic review looking specifically at health outcomes in Latinos um, from peer-led education, which includes FNEP and SNAP-Ed. And then actually, as we were working our way through the, the, the systematic review process, a really excellent review of the literature specifically on SNAP on the SNAP-Ed program came out. So um, a lot of you are probably familiar with uh, Rivera et al. Uh, that came out. And when that came out, we really kind of went back to the drawing board a little bit and decided that we did not need to repeat that work. And so we switched the focus of our paper to look specifically at FNEP. So you will see in our methods um, that we initially searched using both program names, but after this review came out, we ended up re removing any studies that only included SNAP-Ed participants. Next slide, please. So the preliminary work that you need to do before you get started, um, like I said, doing a literature search for any existing systematic reviews, developing the research question or the study aim. And typically in systematic reviews, you wanna be pretty specific. Um, you wanna look at a specific population. Um, you wanna look at a specific intervention. Um, and this is because you don't want uh, too much variability in your, your, um, your research designs and your outcomes. Uh, and your intervention because it makes it harder to synthesize and decide if, you know, difference in results, is it because this one was in kids and this one was in adults, or is it because this one was in women and this one was in men? And so really narrowing your focus as much as is appropriate or possible for the, the subject area really helps with that. So our research question um, was to look at the efficacy of FNEP direct education so we weren't looking at PSE efforts. We were looking at direct education led by an educator. And we wanted to look specifically at the outcome of changing nutrition-related behaviors um, among adult participants. Other preliminary work that we did was establishing which researchers were going to be involved, what roles they were going to have, um, how authorship was going to work, and then developing a detailed protocol uh, to help enable reproducibility and, and limiting bias. And with that, I'll turn it over to Abiyadun um, to talk more about that protocol. Thank you very much. So far that we started with included this listed item, and we started by looking into the literature, like Carrie said, just like a brief um, literature just search to identify 
current work on HEFNEP and to also see there's a gap in what the literature says. And this helped us to identify our research question. And that was the broader research question where we, were, where we wanted to see or look at the efficacy of HEFNEP in changing nutrition behaviors. And alongside with that, we identify sub-questions that are tied to the efficacy of any intervention. And this informs some other questions that also helped us to identify data that we want to extract from the relevant studies. Um, that is seen in the last bullet, the data extraction plan. And some of the sub-questions include the type of uh, behaviors that the literature might likely talk about, and if these behaviors are the change are related to the objective of the programs. And also we add the preset inclusion criteria, and this was broadly defined by the participant that we want to focus on the intervention, which in this case is the FNEP program and what the outcome um, is, which is the nutrition related outcomes. Then we identify a specific um, search strategy that we want to use. We were interested in identifying database that have published or that have lists of um, publications that are related to nutrition, health promotion, and public health. And this I will talk about later in subsequent slides. We also had a appraisal plan to see how the methodology of the different studies that we want to include, how we are going to um, assess them in order to establish the quality of these studies. Then for the synthesis plan, we decide to make it a narrative one. And we know that the conduct, that conducting a research and reports of a research are intertwined together. And so before we delved into conducting the research, we specifically identify a guideline to inform how we want to uh, conduct the research. And so we identify the PRISMA guideline, which is um, uh, as a full is known as a preferred report item for systematic reviews and meta-analysis. So this is a checklist that has about 27 items, which helps to identify information around introduction, methodology, results, and discussion that needs to be reported after conducting a systematic review. So this sort of guided the, how we conducted the research so that we have a strong um, report in the publication. And so this guideline is also accompanied with a flow chart that helps in identifying the number of reports that were included and 
which were excluded and why they were excluded. And this flow chart here is providing a summary of the different stages that we took when we conducted the review actually. And here is showing about six, which I will talk about in the subsequent slide. The first one is the identification of the research question and the eligibility criteria that was presented. Then the identification of the relevant evidence. Then the evaluation of individual studies, the extraction of the data, the synthesis of the data and the interpretation of our findings. So the first stage in this process was where we identified some preset inclusion criteria. And as Carrie mentioned, we were interested in studies that were focusing on direct education um, among FNEP and SNEPED participants and all studies that were like self-study education were excluded. We also wanted to include study that focused mainly on nutrition-related behavior outcomes of food insecurity. So any study that was focusing on attitude change or knowledge or self-efficacy were excluded. And for this study, we included adults that were 18 years or older. However, we did include studies that have um, parents, teenagers or pregnant teenagers, this who we categorize to be adult even if they are younger than 18 years old. So all the papers included had to be peer-reviewed, published in English, and we included articles or studies that in, that were done via, I mean, that, I mean, studies that, study design that was included include the randomized control trial pre and post and quasi-experimental study design. And we did include articles that were published at any time up to the year 2020. And like Harry said, we along the line, we dropped the HEFNEP study. So here we did identify the relevant evidence from three main or broader database. These include the PubMed, Web of Science, and Google Scholar. We also looked at the FNEP database, which includes a collection of FNEP study. Along the line, how far we have uh, screened and identified studies that were eligible to be part of the evidence for our study, we did some backward search, which means that we looked at the, site, the references of these studies to identify other studies that we could not draw from our search. And if they are included as part of the citation of this eligible study, we screen them and assess if they are eligible to be included as well. So that's what a backward search means. And in the search, we use a combination of keywords and some polling operators, which is all 
and 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 a combination of of keywords like FNEP and SNEPED plus intervention, behavior change, impact, evaluation, effect, graduation, or outcome. And here you see an example of what the combination of keywords and the bullying operator looks like. So this flowchart is presenting a summary of the screening process where we first identify it about 724 records from the database search and about seven from the backward search and the FNEP database. We did remove some duplicates because um, they are bound to be duplicate across the different database. And at that, we were left with 406. And we screened the 406 um, records through the title and the abstract, and we were left with about 92. And with the 92 articles, we did a full text um, evaluation where we combine or compare the information in these articles with our preset criteria. And at this stage, about 62 articles were excluded, leaving us with about 30, 30 articles that were included in the study. And here I will be talking a little bit more about the identification uh, process. We first started by creating a document where we tracked the search or identification of the different data, or I would say articles at this point. So this um, table here is showing an example of what the search records in Web of Science look like. You see a combination of um, the different search keywords and the Boolean um, operator used for each. You see the result for each um, for each search, rather, where we total all the search, combining the different um, combination of keywords and removing the internal duplicate, which are the duplicate within the database, because we had to combine different um, search words, and also the external duplicate, which are duplicate between the different database that we use. And we then combine this different, um, the, like the final number of articles from each web, each, um, each database, and did a screening with the title and abstract. After which um, I did that, after which Mattia and um, Carrie joined in reading the full test for the 30 um, paper that, papers that were identified. We had some discussion to decide the final paper that would go into the publication. And so we did the evaluation of each individual studies using the quality assessment tool for quantitative study that was developed by the Cochrane 
collaboration guideline. And in the course of preparing for this webinar, we identified a small error that's related to the citation of that tool. We have, however, included the correct link to the um, tool in this in the handout that will be distributed. And you can find the um, tool in, on page 61 through 71 of that um, URL or the PDF. It also has um, the dictionary, which helps to um, explain the rules that is needed when scoring each individual study. And this um, evaluation process is needed to help us identify or assess the methodological quality of each um, included studies and to assure that the strength of um, the overall evidence is not overestimated or underestimated. So here, um, for the evaluation of the studies, um, the researchers that were involved, Haikari and Mattia, we had to go through each of the papers and um, use the tool that I mentioned to assess these different components listed here. So we had um, the selection bias components, um, which the screenshot of that section is placed in box here that you see. And this include um, whether the individuals that participate in the study are likely to be representative of the target population and to also know whether the percentage of the selected individual, the, the, if they agreed to participate. And the other item or component that we included is the allocation bias, the confounder. So the allocation bias has to do with whether um, the, the method of randomization that was used for confounders, it assesses um, whether confounders were controlled for and if any other confounders were mentioned in the paper. For blinding, it assesses um, whether the um, randomization to different groups were kept secret from the participants or those who are accessing the participant. And next is the data collection tool. Here it's really looking at whether the tool used in assessing outcomes among the participants were validated or reliable. That is, maybe, maybe there is a reliability, if the, there is, if the tool is, has been tested for reliability or validity. And then the next one was looking at how many or the percentage of the participant that did not complete the intervention, whether they dropped out along the line. And for analysis, this component was looking at if the analysis reported was appropriate and if there is power calculation 
for the intervention integrity, it looked at whether there is contamination or um, co-intervention ongoing while the nutrition education was also um, implemented among the participants to see if this might influence their responses to the intervention or the outcomes reported in the paper. And next is the extraction. And here we started by creating an Excel sheet and pulled out different information that are listed in the box here. It includes the population targeted. This um, is related to their age mostly across the paper. We have information about the dietary data collection method and for the type of uh, or the topic that we're interested in, mostly we were looking at um, the use of um, food frequency and 24-hour recall. Then we have uh, the program type, which indicates any information about if it is FNEP. And during the con when we were conducting the, the, the review, we did identify some studies that combine HEFNEP and SNEPED together, although we focused on the FNEP components reported. So we wanted to really show in our report that, oh, these are studies that had a combination of the two, but we focused on the FNEP part. Then the method of education here, we were looking at whether the intervention was conducted individually or within groups. The setting of education, there were some studies that were conducted in the farmer's market setting, some at Ed start um, program. So those had the different um, type of settings we were looking at. We also looked at the sampling method, whether it was done randomly or a convenient sample was just uh, included in the um, intervention. We wanted to also know whether um, this intervention were theory guided. We also included information about the duration of the education and these includes um, like the number of classes and the number of time within the week or the number of weeks that a participant has to like complete the program and um, graduate. Then the main outcome was also included, whether there is a change in the outcome of interest. I would pass it over to Mattia to continue with the um, methodology process and the subsequent slide. Okay. Um, Abhijan, do you want to talk about data synthesis first and then, then I'll go on to slide six? Uh, okay. Yes. So for the data synthesis, we use the narrative approach, which helps to summarize and explain our findings in words, because there are other studies that have used like meta, uh, I mean, meta analysis, where you look at um, outcomes based on the figures or values 
but here it's more like descriptive. So we did, and these include describing the studies included and whether there is differences in like the study design, which um, we also found in some of these um, articles that were included. Then we included narrative around the strength of the evidence. And this was um, extracted from the quality appraiser that we used. And we also stratify the different ha uh, results by the outcomes of interest. Like I mentioned, we were interested in food security and nutrition related outcomes. So we stratify the narration around um, these outcomes based on that. Then for characterizing the heterogeneity of the intervention, because um, we have a mix of um, different study design in how I included studies. So all these were items that we talked about in the data synthesis. So yeah, I can move it to the next slide for Mattia to talk about. Okay, thanks, Abia Dunn. All right, so I'm really going to finish up by talking about the um, interpreting, how we interpreted the results, the strengths and limitations, and then any recommendations that we have. So when it comes to interpreting results, we basically take <clears throat> all the data that was synthesized. And to me, this is my favorite part of the process because this is really where we are drawing conclusions. And we're drawing conclusions, not just on those individual studies, but at the big picture. So we're looking at what does the body of evidence tell us? And then we are coming to conclusions based on that evidence. And then also at this point is when we're making recommendations based on, again, that that entire body of evidence. So there are a few different components that we weaved into this, uh, this part of our paper and part of the process. It might look a little different for you depending on if you're submitting a systematic review to a different journal or kind of what the previous research looks like. But as Carrie mentioned, there were a few different systematic reviews that had been published on similar topics in the past. And so in our discussion, we took this as an opportunity to compare the findings of our systematic review with the findings of those previous reviews. And I think that's really helpful for readers so they can really understand what's all been researched and all the reviews and the kind of the the results that have been interpreted from those and how they compare. We also use this as an opportunity to assess the overall strength of the evidence as again as a, a whole body of evidence. Um, you know, we, we do look at those individual articles when we're doing the quality assessment. And so there is that opportunity there to also identify strengths and limitations of each individual study. But also what were the strengths, uh, you know, of this entire body of evidence and the, the limitations and where do we go from here? And that really leads me to kind of my next point here is uh, formulating implications for practice and research. And uh, this is a really neat part of, uh, of systematic reviews, uh, I think, and, and of ours specifically as well, because this is where we're really getting to take all of this research and identify not only where researchers need to go in the future in regards to FNAP research, but also what, what should 
people who work with the FNAP program or other related, you know, federally funded programs do with this information? So how can we help kind of close the gap and turn that research into ideas and implications for practice? And so it's a really great opportunity to really reach those researchers that research federally funded programs, but then to also reach those who work with SNAP-Ed and, and FNAP and WIC and other federally funded programs where this information, you know, might tie into what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Next slide, please. So as I mentioned, it's important to, just as with a journal article, it's important to acknowledge the strengths and limitations of the systematic review. And so we've listed here some of the strengths and limitations we identified, but again, that can vary from one review to another. But we followed the recommended best practices for quite a few aspects of the methodological approach. So we tracked data search and collection, which is incredibly essential. It's just essential with a systematic review. And, and so really finding ways to ensure that that part of the process is incredibly detailed and thorough is, is really important with this type of review. We included multiple researchers to verify the different steps in the process. And again, this is the recommended best practice because as Carrie kind of mentioned earlier, we want to make sure that we're really thorough, that we're accurate, and that we are eliminating and reducing as much as possible any opportunity for bias. And so having multiple researchers engaged in the entire process of the review is really essential and can help with all of those components. We appraised the studies. Sometimes this, you can call it appraisal or quality assessment. And this is really, as, uh, as Abia Dunn talked about, the opportunity to identify the strengths and limitations of uh, the studies that are included in the review. And again, a really essential part uh, of uh, ensuring that we're accurately coming to the correct conclusions and, and drawing accurate conclusions based on the evidence. And it really gives us an opportunity to dive very deep into each of those individual studies and then to have those discussions and compare um, amongst the research, research group. We tabulated data again, which is just an essential part of the process. And then we use the PRISMA guideline for reporting. And uh, the PRISMA guideline is really the most common of the systematic review and meta-analysis guidelines out there. And uh, just keep in mind that there, there are a few others that exist. And so it is important, I would always say to, even before you start the process, I would kind of consider, you know, what journal you might be submitting to, to ensure that, uh, you're following the correct guideline through the process. So, so those were some of the strengths that we identified with our systematic review. Couple of limitations, we only used one study appraisal tool and I'll talk about this more in a minute, but keep in mind that you aren't necessarily limited to one. If, for example, you have different study designs that are used, you might wanna consider using a couple of different appraisal tools and I'll talk more about that. We also did not register our protocol, and this is another opportunity that um, we, you know, recommend for future researchers. And I'll be done if you go to the next slide. Okay, so some of our recommendations. <clears throat> First is decide on a protocol before starting a review. 
And uh, I would say not only decide on a protocol, but have a really thorough discussion amongst the research group to make sure that everyone is on the same page, write down that protocol and uh, just uh, work out any kinks. And uh, then that's really kind of leading to these next recommendations that I have. Uh, the next one would be select a specific guideline for conducting that review. And again, those guidelines, most of the time you're seeing that Prisma checklist and it's really a helpful resource and a helpful tool. And again, I would start looking at that early on as you're deciding on the protocol and what that's going to look like. Use the tool that you've identified um, that you think will work best. And again, most of the time it's Prisma, but there are others that exist. And then consider registering your systematic review at inception. And there are a few different ways that you can do that, and I've listed a few of those here, but there are a couple different benefits of registering your systematic review. If you remember, Carrie talked about how one of the challenges that we came up with is that there was actually a review published while we were kind of working in progress on our review. And that review was um, by Riviera and about SnapEd. And so we actually kind of took a step back and revised our review process at that point. And if you register your systematic review, this becomes a published document. And it's basically a your protocol gets published so that other other researchers out there know that this is a review that's work in progress and that this is the protocol that will be followed. So it can really help prevent duplication of efforts. The other benefit is that then when you do publish your systematic review, you can actually compare the published protocol to what was done in the systematic review as another way to ensure protocol is followed accurately. Another piece that we recommend is to involve multiple researchers to verify steps in the process. And again, this helps eliminate, reduce that bias. It helps ensure that you're accurate and that you're thorough through the entire process. So finding and ensuring that level of engagement occurs throughout the entire systematic review process and not just at maybe the writing process. So there are a lot of different ways that researchers can engage together and have discussions and review literature and uh, go through those uh, those quality assessment tools uh, individually and then come together to discuss. And then review quality assessment tools and determine which is most suitable for the types of studies that will be in your review. And it's very interesting because if you look out there in the literature, there are, and I might be safe to say, a hundred or more um, quality assessment tools that are used in our field. And then even more if you're looking beyond. And so it's really important to identify and become familiar with those tools. And oftentimes these tools are developed for specific types of study designs. And so you, you may decide to utilize more than one quality assessment tool. And, and that's fine. We used a tool that was really intended for a wide variety of study designs. And so that's an option too. But I do think it's important for us to be aware of the tools that do exist. And there are several good reviews out there there that you could look for that actually summarize and review all of these different quality assessment tools. So, next slide, please. 
Okay, a few other things to consider before we wrap up. One is understand the needs of those who are likely to read your review, similar to a journal article. But this is really helpful because, again, we're not only targeting researchers uh, within our area of like public health nutrition, we're targeting researchers so they know where to take the research next, but we're also targeting individuals who work in, in the field. And so really finding the a journal that will be the best fit to help ensure that uh, this uh, review can target those individuals and then being able to incorporate some of those uh, implications for research and practice uh, in that review is very helpful. Consider the time commitment and the timeline of the process. Systematic reviews do take a lot of time from all of the researchers involved and so it's important to for the research team to kind of a, understand that and then set up a timeline so that you can stay on track with that process. And I also encourage you to take note of when each step was conducted, you know, different time periods, months, years, whatever it may be, to really ensure that that information could also be put into the systematic review for transparency. Consider using a software for references and in-text citations. This is, I think, especially helpful for systematic reviews because you're working with such a large number of publications. So everyone has different preferences as to which software is their favorite. But I think in this process, having a software and, and becoming familiar and utilizing one is really beneficial. And then determining a funding source if you need one. So do you need to pay uh, researchers for their time? Do you have access to the databases and to the journal articles, or is that something that you would need to pay for as well? Next slide, please. Okay, these are the references that we included in the slides themselves, and you can see uh, reference number five is uh, our citation for our systematic review, but there are some other really great ones here as well for previous work that's been done in this area. And then, Abhijan, will you go to the next slide, please? These are some resources that we think will be incredibly beneficial if you are, you know, deciding on and, and thinking about conducting a systematic review, you know, maybe taking some time to review some of these, these resources beforehand can give you some great ideas to help ensure that you're successful in the process. Next slide, please. So we just want to say that this study was supported in part by the research grant from the USDA uh, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. So we thank them for that. Okay, next slide. And here's our contact information. If any of you have any questions about the, the actual systematic review that we conducted or the process, um, any of us would be happy to answer questions. And now I think we're open to any questions that you have at the moment. Stop sharing slides now. Thank you so much. So we do have a few questions in the question box. If anyone else has questions, please type those into the question box so I can moderate those out to our presenters. So the first question is, um, what was behind the decision to exclude studies with uh, PSE or results attributable to PSC, um, either alone or with direct education? And did you learn anything in the review that would help others examine studies that include PSCs in the future? Um, thanks for that great question. Um, we, 
we really decided to focus on direct education just because of the necessity of limiting heterogeneity in some way. So I do think another review that looked at PSE work, um, there's more and more published about that every day, or studies that look at a combination of direct ed and PSE work uh, would be helpful as well. Um, as far as lessons, if anybody's going to move forward with that kind of a thing, um, I would say to, to really carefully think about um, what types of, of study designs are, are going to be common in the research that you find, maybe looking at a preliminary list of studies and thinking really hard about what quality analysis tool or tools you use and making sure that it's a good fit for um, the types of studies you're doing, you know, thinking about things like, you know, does this, you know, does this is are the questions being asked really applicable to the types of studies that we're looking at? Abiyadana and Matea, did you guys have anything to add? Say that when we conducted the, when we started with this um, to identify relevant um, studies, at that time, which was like 2016, I don't think there are much studies on PSC. So a lot of studies that we came across then were related to just education. So that informed our decision to stay within just education and but I, I agree with Carrie. There has been so much work, not only, you know, in FNEP and SNAP-Ed and other, you know, related public health nutrition education programs that have focused on PSC work. And I personally haven't seen a systematic review that has really looked at that. And so that could be a great opportunity for other researchers uh, to dive deeper and look at uh, the comprehensive evidence of PSE work in this field. Thank you. So another question, um, did you include gray literature and could you talk about how the methods differ and um, why you might or might not use gray literature? Thanks. Another great question. Um, so gray literature refers to things that haven't been published in um, peer-reviewed journal articles. So these are things like um, like uh, annual reports that programs might put out, things like that. And we decided for the purposes of this study to focus primarily on things that are in the peer-reviewed literature. And to the best of my memory, one of the main reasons that we decided to do that is because a lot of the details that you need to do kind of the quality analysis and really make firm conclusions about the um, about the evidence aren't always available in the gray literature. Um, there are kind of pros and cons to including or not including the gray literature. We know that there is, um, in general, in in uh, the field of nutrition, there's you know a systematic bias to publish positive findings um, and not negative findings, and so in that case you know, only looking at the published literature might show an overly positive <clears throat> outcome. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of evidence is gathered for program evaluation, but 
it doesn't really make sense to go through the work of publishing it in a peer-reviewed journal article. So I think that that would probably be another um, concern that we might have and something that we thought about really hard, um, but ended up deciding um, to only go with the peer-reviewed published literature. It was kind of interesting, too. We 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 did not set, you know, uh, an early time limit. We went up to 2020, but we didn't set a time limit. And it was interesting, the further back in time we went, you know, some of the earliest studies on FNAP were published really early. Um, and the further back in time you go, the more different kind of reporting requirements or what's included in the published journal articles are. Um, and it became harder to um, to use the quality assessment tool. But one of the great things about the tool that we did choose is for most of the things, there's kind of like yes, no, and not reported. And so that allowed us to, you know, finish it without having to guess or make our own decision about how to um, score the, the quality assessment. So speaking of, oh, do you want to go ahead? Sorry. Say one more thing is, you know, I just think of for many years I've worked with SNAP-Ed and I think of the number of states, you know, all of our states have SNAP-Ed programs. We all produce all sorts of, you know, annual reports and quarterly reports and, and all of these ways of showing impact in gray literature. And I think it would become very difficult to include all of that great literature and ensure that you're not missing anything. Um, so maybe it would be easier to do like some sort of narrative review with great literature on this topic. But I just think to ensure that you've collected all great literature on FNEP uh, might be a little tricky unless all of that is hubbed somewhere in like an FDEP, FNEP database. And then you had mentioned time frame. Could you address why you did not limit um, how old the studies were? And then how old were some of the studies? Yeah, I think behind this is because there hasn't been any studies that have talked about FNEP specifically. So it makes sense for us to dig from like wherever we can find evidence around the uh, efficacy of this um, intervention. So I can't really remember the like the oldest one. Um, Mattia, do you have an idea of what that would be? Yeah. It should be maybe 19. Oh, I'm actually looking through the reference list now. I know that we had several from the 80s. I was trying to remember if we had one from the, maybe the 70s, like maybe 76, 78. Yeah, I was trying to remember if we had one from the 70s. Um, yeah, so exactly like Abhi Dunn said, you know, typically if I'm doing a systematic review, I start with where the last systematic review ended. And since there hadn't been one, we really wanted to go back and capture that that history. I think the other thing that kind of prompted that is um there was the 50th anniversary of FNAP coming up, and we were just really aware of the long history of both of these programs, and um, we're kind of interested to see what was what was published earlier on. Yeah, yeah. 
I think one of the highlights of doing that was it helped us understand how previous uh, reporting of uh, studies that have uh, talked about the efficacy of FNEF, how they did, because we're able to see the transition in, in reporting in our findings and also tying it to the H uh, dietary guidelines, how there was like uh, how um, the program objective and some of the outcomes targeted sort of transition uh, with those timelines stuff here. That would be interesting. And I think, Carrie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think 73 was the earliest. Is that what you found, too? That is what I found, yeah. Uh, Verma and Jones uh, looking at FNEP in Louisiana, 1973. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we had someone ask, and I apologize because I'm the one who started using this acronym, is what does PSE stand for? Policy, System, and Environmental Change. So I apologize. Mm -hmm. That one's on me. Um, Another question, in your review, did you find some effectiveness of FNEP in changing nutrition-related outcomes? Yeah, we did. Um, we did on nutrition education, I mean, nutrition-related outcomes, but the specific, I can't remember on top of my head at this point. We also did for food security. There were increasing food um, security, I mean, improved food security among participants. Then because we sort of broke down, um, the results around the nutrition outcomes to like the different objectives of the program, some looking at like general behaviors and some re related to um, um, diet quality type of things. So we did see some and we did identify some gaps with um, specific nutrition or diet quality. Yeah, but yeah, I would refer you to the paper at this point. I don't have the exact result on top of my head. Like Abia Dunn said, really broadly, we saw um, generally positive changes in both dietary outcomes as well as dietary behaviors. Um, but um, uh, the the there were fewer studies that looked at the retention of those behaviors over time. And quite a few of those studies found, um, you know, that the, the changes kind of uh, reduced or, or even were completely eliminated uh, by the end of the study. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a pretty good synopsis of our, um, our results. But like Abidon said, there's a lot of detail in, in the paper. So I would definitely point you there for, um, more um more about what we found and um yeah we we didn't put any slides together on that because you know the the theme of the the um uh webinar series this year is methodology but it definitely felt weird <laughs> to kind of stop with and that's how we did it and not tell you what did we find but yeah, yeah. Well, we appreciate you, all three of you today, sharing your methods and sharing how you went through this process. I know it's very helpful for all of us in learning how to be better researchers. So I want to thank you again for joining us. And at this point, I can pass it over to Rachel. That just means we might have to invite you back. 
<laughs> um, yes, thank you for sharing. Just a reminder, there's a short uh, survey when I uh, close the webinar. We appreciate your feedback. And then watch for an email follow-up probably tomorrow that includes a link to the recording and the handout in the CEU certificate. Um, just so that you look at your SNEB schedule, the um, Healthy Aging Division has a hot topics call this Wednesday, and then we will be back online with our next Journal Club webinar next Monday. And then, oh, and if you if you did sign up for the 21 day racial equity challenge, the third um, discussion section is this Thursday. And even if you hadn't uh, made any of the other sessions, you're more than welcome to join in um, even this week. Um, on Thursday at 7 p.m. And then conference registration is now open uh, with in-person attendance in um, Atlanta as well as virtual participation. I believe the abstract um, notices are going out maybe even later this week on um, the dates and the times. So, of course, if there's any questions, uh, look at the website or contact us in the office. Thank you all for participating today. Bye. Thank you.